0: I thought of uh, using this passage tonight after our conversation on Wednesday. I thought it was particularly pertinent to, because I was thinking of doing something else uh, before that, uh, pertinent to the stage where it has a community, um, not only because it deals with Moses, and although it probably doesn't occur to many people that, when I hear the word mosaic, I always think of Moses. <laughs> the adjective um, of his name is the one that I'm more familiar with in my background. Um but also because it deals with the theme of responding to threatening new challenges that confront us in our life, either as individuals or as a community. So the reading comes from Exodus 3 and 4. It's just an excerpt from a very long story. A story that deals with the calling of Moses to be God's instrument for the deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. According to biblical tradition, Moses was the greatest of all the prophets. And this line of expectation was actually picked up several times in the, New, in the New Testament of expecting a prophet greater than Moses, one even beyond the, the, the standard that Moses set. Because he really was the sort of paradigm for, um, for the, the sort of prophetic mouthpiece of God And this long and moving account of his commissioning is uh, one of the masterpieces in Old Testament literature. One portion of the story has been very important to me personally over the difficult journey I've been through recently, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But I think the story does have important things to say to all of us, and especially for those of us who are pondering what, uh, or maybe fretting over what God may have in store for us next. So the story begins with Moses shepherding the flock of his father in law uh, called Jethro in the wilderness near a place called Mount Horeb. The day started out like any other day for Moses, doing the same old thing that shepherds always do, but it ends up changing his life forever and, in fact, the life of the human race. Uh, As you will remember, Moses notices a desert bush that appears to have caught on fire. When he draws closer to investigate the blaze, he discovers that the flame is no ordinary flame because the bush isn't being burned up. It's a divine flame, a so-called theophany, uh, which is a word that refers to the sort of visible manifestation of the presence of God. It was obviously an entirely unexpected event for Moses. He was not on a spiritual quest at that time. He was looking after goats. He wasn't looking for God. But God was clearly looking for Moses. And he calls out to him by name, Moses, Moses, don't come any closer. You are standing on holy ground. Take off your shoes and pay attention. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So God actually begins by identifying himself first as the God of faithfulness. He has not forgotten or abandoned his people. He's not reneged on the covenant with Abraham hundreds of years earlier, nor on his promises to Isaac and to Jacob. God's still their God, and God can be counted on to uphold his commitments to them. And then God explains to Moses, who is understandably understandably terror-struck, at the Experience, he explains that he intends to deliver his people from the oppression that they are suffering and to restore them to freedom. I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings. Now I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey." So what incredibly good news that was. After centuries of persecution and suffering, God is finally coming to the rescue of Israel. But, as we've all picked up, God can't do it alone. He needs Moses to be his mouthpiece, to speak on his behalf to Pharaoh, and to lead his battered, demoralized people out of slavery and into the Promised Land. So come, God says to Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. What could be better news than that for Israel? But Moses is not so sure. He is alarmed about what God has planned for him to do in the escape plan. It strikes him as being much too hard, much too daunting, much too risky because you know as boat has explained he had after all once lived amongst the egyptians he had witnessed their brutality firsthand and he even had to flee from egypt to save his own neck because the previous pharaoh wanted to kill moses because of his treachery so moses instinctively shrinks back from god's commission and he manufactures a whole string of excuses for why he couldn't possibly do what God wants him to do. Excuses that God responds to one by one. And so what follows in the story is a kind of running debate between God and Moses about Moses' role in the planned drama. It's almost the reverse of what we think of as prayer. So we think of prayer Usually, we think of it this way, as a matter of us persistently trying to talk God into doing something for us, to meet our needs. Here, it's God who is trying to talk Moses into doing something. God does the persuading, and Moses does the prevaricating. So in all, Moses raises no fewer than five objections to God's plans for him, five reasons why he is not suitable for the task that God has in mind. The first reason Moses gives is his marginal social standing and his lack of political status. Who am I, he asks, an abandoned Hebrew child, a refugee from Egyptian justice, a mere goat herder in the wilderness? Who am I that I could dare to go before the great king of Egypt? Who was believed by his people to be a deity, and tell him what he must do. It's a very natural human reaction, a recoiling from the magnitude of the task, an overwhelming sense of one's own insignificance or lack of self confidence in one's background and experience. Who am I to attempt such a thing? I'm no celebrity, I'm no genius, I'm no superhero. I'm no saint. It's worth noting, again, um, you've picked this up in your um, reflections, it's worth noting that God doesn't respond to Moses' apprehensiveness by reassuring him that he does have what it takes to be a superhero. That he has the intelligence, the education, the courage, the resilience to make up for his lack of social standing. Instead, he says... I will be with you. You may not think you have all the necessary credentials, but I will be with you. We will do it together. Yes, I want to send you to Egypt, but I am not staying back here to see how you get get on. I'm coming with you, and my power and my presence will work through you. You need to trust in me, not in your own strength or in your own status. But then Moses thinks of a second objection, which centers on how he will be able to convince others of his mission and deal with their skepticism. If I go to the Israelites, he says, and say, listen up, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they'll probably say, yeah, right. What exactly do you mean by God, Moses? What's the name of this God you're talking about? So by inquiring into God's name, they wouldn't be simply asking, what label do you stick on your God alongside the other gods that we have around us uh, in this land? Not asking just for a, you know, a, a name in the sense of a, of a label. They will be asking, what kind of God are you talking about? Because in Semitic thought, names are a way of describing somebody's character or personality, or power, or identity. There's an incredible amount of emphasis in the Bible on naming of people, and there is often in many other cultures uh, today, because the name was a way of capturing what this person's character um, or role or destiny was. And so Moses wonders how he will possibly be able to respond to this question about God's name, because he doesn't know the answer. He doesn't know who this person is in the burning bush who's calling him to this task. And so God gives him the answer, and it's a very long answer. And it begins with this mysterious statement, and people have reflected on this for thousands of years. That's what this, uh, this name is about. It begins with this mysterious statement, I am who I am. Tell the Israelites, I am Sent you. So God assumes this very unusual name, which in Jewish tradition became a completely uh, taboo name to utter. And so um, it's often translated or rendered today by the word Yahweh, which is you know, the, the sort of verbal form. But um, the reason why the word Yahweh doesn't appear in the Old Testament in the English translation, but we have the phrase the Lord, is because when Jews got to the sacred name, they never uttered it. It was so sacred, just four letters, uh, that they just spoke of the Lord rather than uttering this name. So uh, this became really, really central to the understanding of God. This unusual name, I Am, to indicate that his identity and his character are known by what he does in real time. It's what God actually does that displays who he is. In other words, Israel is God, is a God of practical engagement, not a God of philosophical speculation. You can only find out what God is like by engaging with God, by listening to God, to listening to God's words and observing God's actions, and by learning from them what matters most to God. And so God then spells out what matters most to Him, what characterizes His way of being. When the people ask you about me, Moses, tell them, I am the God of your ancestors. I'm a God of faithfulness. A God who remains true to his commitments to your tūpuna. Tell them, I have given heed to you and what has been done to you in Egypt. I'm a God of mercy and compassion who shares your suffering. Tell them, I will bring you out of the misery of Egypt and into the land flowing with milk and honey. I'm a God of justice and of freedom. And when you go from Egypt, you'll not go empty-handed, you'll take silver and gold and clothing. I'm a God of restoration and a God of equity. That's precisely who I am. I am a God of faithfulness, of mercy, of justice of kindness, of restoration, of equality. Say, I am who I say I am, and I do what I say I'll do. But Moses is still not satisfied. He stalls for time, asking, What if they don't believe me or listen to me and deny you have appeared to me How can I convince them? And so God, and it's not in our text that was read um, because it's just a a summary, God responds by reassuring Moses that he will be empowered to do miraculous signs and wonders. And he gives him a kind of dummy run by three astonishing examples. By turning his staff into a snake and back again. uh, By inflicting and curing leprosy on his hand. And by turning water into blood. I mean, what more could people need to believe him he's <laughs> some pretty magical deeds god's power and god's presence will be visible and persistent with you moses this is the sort of thing that they will see but now moses turns straight forth and clinching argument for why he cannot possibly serve as god's appointed spokesperson he lacks the verbal skills to do the job. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past, nor even now that you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. To fulfill God's mission, he needs to be a man of words. But he isn't a great orator. And that's what bothers Moses most about himself. His inability to speak in public as fluently and eloquently as he wanted to. I am slow of speech and tongue. In the Hebrew, it literally means my tongue feels heavy when I speak. Like it sticks to the roof of my mouth. And in bitter anguish, he cries, I have never I have never been eloquent, neither in the past as a long-standing problem, nor even now that you have spoken to your servant, even encountering your power here and now, still hasn't cured my speech impediment. My biggest, most distressing, most debilitating problem remains. How on earth can I go before the fearsome pharaoh and the elders of your people, and speak plainly on your behalf. You can almost hear the despair in Moses' voice. Now, I spent a long time meditating on Moses' words here, because as you'll know, three and a half years ago now, I suffered an unexpected stroke, or series of strokes in fact, uh, following a long haul flight home from America. And looking back on that episode, there were many ways in which I experienced God's protecting care in the event. The first symptoms happened in a hotel room in California uh, the evening before I was due to fly home. I wasn't sure what was happening to me. Uh, I thought I must have been uh, just the symptoms of a severe migraine or the heavy medication that uh, I I took. Besides, I didn't want to get sucked into the American hospital system. And so decided that you know, my flight was due to leave just the following evening. I'd press on with the journey home and see the doctor when I got back. And I had the most miserable flight of my life. And I got progressively sicker as the hours went by. I looked in the mirror halfway through and I thought, I've died. I, mean, I, I literally looked like I was a, was a, a specter. Um, Had I had the full stroke during that 12-hour flight across the Pacific Ocean, who knows what would have happened. Somehow I made it back to Wellington. Margaret picked me up at the airport. And a few minutes later, in the front seat of the car, I lost consciousness. And Margaret didn't know what was happening, uh, what to do. And she heard a voice in her head clearly saying, "Uh, there is no time to lose. We've got to go to the hospital. And she did. Thank God. Uh, Once there, I had the full-blown stroke, uh, which a nurse luckily picked up, and I was able to get that clot-busting drug straight away, which undoubtedly minimised the damage. So clearly, God was looking after me in that uh, terrible event. But the stroke still had a significant impact, and particularly on my speech. Uh, Initially, I couldn't speak at all, but I regained speech quite quickly. But like Moses, I was slow of speech. And heavy of tongue. And as someone who has spent his whole life doing public speaking and teaching and preaching and doing it, if I might say so reasonably well, um, I have three awards for my public speaking. The frustration and the fear of losing my fluency were immense. Of course, I was deeply grateful that I'd been spared cognitive damage or physical paralysis, or even death. But, as with Moses, even the experience of God's loving kindness still left me struggling with the one thing that meant most to me, which was my speech. And because strokes take a long time to recover from, and the recovery is so unpredictable, I had no way of knowing what the long-term outcome would be. So the initial months, indeed years, were an enormous test of faith and determination for me, on a daily basis. But as I endeavour to continue speaking and teaching and preaching, often with real discouragement, sometimes even with embarrassment over how hard it had become, my anchor has been God's response to Moses' cry of despair about his speech difficulties. Who made man's mouth? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go and I will be with your mouth and show you what you are to say. Uh, and the Septuagint, the Greek translation, uh, literally is, I will open your mouth and bring together the words you are to say. The idea of bringing them together. I have that on my, on my uh, office wall. And gradually my speech has improved, um, although it still remains frustratingly unpredictable and still remains hard. But the healing is not something that God has done to me or for me. is something God has done with me. And that seems to be God's favoured way of doing things. As he said to Moses, go and I will be with you. I will be your mouth. God is Emmanuel, the God who is with us. God is the supreme collaborator. God usually, whatever our religious traditions background might say, God usually does not take away all our struggles and problems and tribulations by miraculous power so that we become superheroes. Instead, God reminds us, as he reminded Moses, that as creator of all, God is greater than our limitations and can work with us in spite of our limitations, as long as we are prepared to work with him in trust and obedience, which sometimes is actually the hardest thing of all. Moses' final objection to God's call is an outright confession of self-centeredness. Oh, my Lord, Please send someone else. (laughs) Whatever your promises of help may be, it's still too scary for me to contemplate. Surely, surely, surely someone else could do it. Keep me out of the firing line. And it's only now, in this very long story, it's only now that God starts to become annoyed. And he does so, perhaps, because Moses' concern for himself is obscuring what is really at stake. God's plan to deliver myriads of people from tyranny and injustice. It's almost like God says, look, for one moment, forget about yourself, Moses. There are real people suffering here, and I want to save them, but I need your help to do so. So get over yourself, Moses. But God does, as Peter points out, God offers Moses one more sort of, on the basis of the negotiation, one crucial source of help, which is the support of a close companion whose gifts he can can compensate for Moses' limitations. What if your brother Aaron, the Levite, I know that he can speak fluently. You shall speak to him, and put his and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you what you shall do. He indeed shall serve as a mouth for you, and you shall serve as God for him. <laughs> hey, Presto! I thought it, I thought of the solution. Let's do it this way. So just as God doesn't require us to be superheroes, he also doesn't expect us to be lone rangers. Just as God works with us, he wants us to work with each other. Aaron can be your helper, and I'll be your mouth. I uh, I'll be with your mouth and with his mouth. He will speak for you, and I will tell you what he is to say. Sounds like a three-way collaboration will get the job done. And at last, Moses gives in and he accepts the call and the rest is quite literally history. But I'm sure all of us can identify with Moses' struggles to surrender to God's will and to trust in God's power. We also think that we are too insignificant to make a difference. We also often get confused about what really matters to God – faithfulness, mercy, compassion, justice and restoration, not status or appearance or education. We also get worried about the attitudes of others and how we might deal with their doubts and questions. We get hobbled with feelings of inadequacy, often focusing on the one major area of struggle in our life, which for Moses was his public speaking, but it could be anything uh, in anybody's life. We get fixated on what it will cost us and lose sight of the bigger picture of God's redemptive work in the world. And we forget that we are not alone that God is with us, and that God's presence is most powerfully experienced in the love and support of our brothers and sisters. When Moses accepted God's call, he and Aaron went to the elders of Israel to tell them what had happened. And contrary to what Moses had feared, we are told the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had given heed to the Israelites and that he had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. So that's, I guess, what it's all about. The poor, the needy, the oppressed, hearing about God's merciful justice and bowing down with us to worship this God of faithfulness, of compassion, of justice, of freedom and of restoration.